we'll be looking at 1 Kings 12, verses 25 to 33. We'll be looking at a man who did not stay true to the faith of the fathers, not only not till death, but not very long at all, looking at Jeroboam. So 1 Kings 12, verses 25 to 33, before we read together, let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would not allow us to fall into the trap that we are about to read in Jeroboam, but indeed, keep us faithful to the faith of the fathers, to the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jesus, the apostles. We pray that you would help us understand your word, write it upon our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. 1 Kings 12, starting in verse 25. Then Jeroboam fortified Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. From there he went out and built up Peniel. Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifice at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to their lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel and the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin. The people went even as far as Dan to worship the one there. Jeroboam built shrines on high places and appointed priests from all sorts of people, even though they were not Levites. He instituted a festival on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the festival held in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the altar. This he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves he had made, and at Bethel he also installed priests at the high places he had made. On the 15th day of the 8th month, a month of his own choosing, he offered sacrifices on the altar he had built in Bethel. So he instituted the festival for the Israelites and went up to the altar to make offerings. The scripture often warns us against false prophets and false teachers of various kinds, and we'll run into a number of them as we get into the very thrilling Elijah and Elisha narratives, and they deal very frequently with very many false prophets of various gods. But Jesus himself also warns us against false prophets and false teachers. When we come to Matthew 7, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And Paul says nothing other than what the Savior says in 2 Corinthians. He says this, Such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder... For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Paul says in the letter to Galatians that there are men who would try to distort the gospel. He says this in Galatians 1, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel 
of Christ. The takeaway from all these passages, and we could have gone into others as well, the, the takeaway from all of these passages is that there is one true religion, and that is the religion of the Lord, the maker of the heavens and the earth, and as we come into our own day, the religion of Jesus Christ. But, but more than that, there are people who claim to be part of the true religion, but who in reality distort the truth so gravely that what they actually worship is false gods and not the truth at all. And so what we see here in today's passage is a gross intentional distortion of the worship of the one true God. We'll come to that in just a moment. It seems in verse 25 that Jeroboam starts out quite well. So let's look at verse 25. Then Jeroboam fortified Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. From there he went out and built up Peniel. It seems as though Jeroboam starts well. He becomes the king of these ten northern tribes exactly as God had promised that he would. He sets out or he embarks on a, a mission to fortify his borders. He builds one fort in the south and one fort on the east to, to keep off incursions. He seems to be doing his job quite faithfully, and this is a good start. But after only one verse of recording a good start, immediately we see that Jeroboam falls into sin. Look at verses 26 and 27. Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifice at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam. It doesn't take Jeroboam very long to mess it up, does it? Uh, the text says that he thought to himself. In the original Hebrew, it says, Jeroboam said in his heart. The issue with Jeroboam, as it had been with Solomon before him, is that he listens to his heart. There's a, an 80s song by that title, Listen to Your Heart. I won't sing it lest I sing two weeks in a row. But listening to your heart is very often very bad advice. Listening to your heart, Calvin says much more accurately than the singer of the 80s song, Calvin says that the human heart is a factory of idols. And you look and you see Jeroboam, he conjures up these idols in his heart. And we might conjure up idols in our own hearts, idols of, of lust, idols of money or power, athletics or control. It's not usually a good idea to listen to our hearts when they're telling us what to worship or what not to worship. So what was Jeroboam's biggest problem? His biggest problem wasn't the golden calves. His biggest problem is that he didn't trust God. He didn't keep the faith. The Lord had told Jeroboam through the prophet Ahijah the Shilonite, that he would make him a dynasty just like David's, if only he would remain faithful to him. Well, that's a promise. It's a promise from God, and it's a promise from God that Jeroboam should have known he was not only powerful enough to keep, but that he was good enough to keep. Yet here, when Jeroboam sits on the throne after God had placed him on the throne, he loses faith. His faith fails. A few weeks back in the evening service, we looked at the parable 
of the sower and of the soils. And one of those four soils is the, the rocky soil. And the seed is sown upon these different soils, and they give different results. And when the seed is sown in the rocky soil, it grows immediately. It looks promising, but almost as quickly as it grows, it dies because it lacks roots that can nourish it and keep it going. It's, it's a surface-level soil. And so it is with some people. They respond very quickly and eagerly to God, but it's merely an emotional response or response of convenience. As soon as the going gets tough, as they say, they get going. So it is with Jeroboam. He trusts the Lord so long as it's easy. But as soon as some sort of perceived adversity or challenge shows itself, just like that, he diverts from the faith, and not only diverts from it, but he distorts it. Not that Jeroboam lost his faith. It's that the adversity demonstrates that Jeroboam never had true faith in the first place. For Jeroboam, God was not enough. For Jeroboam, God's word was not enough. For Jeroboam, God's word was not strong enough. God's word was not secure enough. How about for you? Security was Jeroboam's God. Self-sufficiency was Jeroboam's God. Are we so different? What if God called you to something that required you to give up everything to follow the call? Something that would not leave you self-sufficient any longer? What if he called you to missions in a foreign land? You know, the PCA has an initiative going on right now calling churches to give just 1% of their people, not their money, their people, to foreign missions. That would mean roughly three of us would go into the mission field. If God calls you, will you go? Will you go if it means leaving family and homes and cars? Will it go if it means Instead of providing for yourself, you have to depend on God to provide for you. Will you go even if it seems absurd to you? Will you trust God? Is God strong enough for you? Is God's word enough for you? Is God secure enough for you? Jeroboam was a pragmatist. On the surface, it looks like he, made, he makes a, a shrewd political calculation. He says, if people keep having to leave my country to go to a different country to worship, they might decide they prefer that country. After all, that's where they're supposed to worship their God. And so if they decide that, they might decide just to go back to King Rehoboam. And if they decide to go back to their King Rehoboam, I'm a dead man. It's good political calculus. Of course, the missing piece is that God's word had said that wasn't going to happen. Jeroboam trusts in the wisdom of the world instead of in the wisdom of God. Before we go in, into the next verses, I, I want to make a, an observation, an application. Most of my observation and application is aimed at us. It's, it's always been the practice of the prophets and the preachers to aim the majority of their application at their first audience. 
But every once in a while, it's good to look beyond the walls, so to speak, and consider what kinds of dangers may lurk outside our walls. And I think perhaps the, the best application of these verses to the culture broadly that impacts us is to see in them a condemnation of Christian liberalism, which the Presbyterian, the great 20th century Presbyterian, J. Gresham Machen reminded us that Christian liberalism is not Christianity at all. Orthodoxy is not convenient in today's age. It's not convenient to trust in the Word and all that it says. It, you're, you're called backwards or old-fashioned or Neanderthal or whatever it may be. It's not in vogue to trust in the name of God. And so in order to gain cultural accommodation and security, many churches and supposed ministers of the gospel have gone about the work of changing the gospel and changing the word of God or simply ignoring parts of it in order to make it more palatable for the people around them in order to give themselves a sense of security. And it'd be very easy in today's world to do away with the things that are unpopular and unsavory to the world. It's very easy to do away with God-given human sexuality and the idea of gender roles and binary gender itself. To maintain the, the doctrines of hell and to maintain doctrines of the exclusivity of Christ, the immediate supernatural creation of the world and a final judgment is to be scorned in our world. Yet, Jeroboam leaves behind the true faith and though it seemed convenient at the time, it was of no benefit to him. And he and his kingdom would soon crumble. Keep the faith. Keep the faith of the fathers, no matter what it costs or how inconvenient it may be. And look at verses 28 to 30. It says, After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel and the other in Dan, and this thing became a sin. The people went even as far as Dan to worship the one built there. Now Jeroboam combines the worst of Solomon and the worst of Rehoboam. He deserts the Lord in his heart as Solomon had done, and he takes very bad advice, as Rehoboam had done. And Jeroboam may be faithless, but he is not stupid. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's very shrewd, and he's very sneaky. And so he's not going to conjure up a new religion out of nowhere that's going to have no validity. Instead, he designs a religion reaching down into the history of Israel to give it a sense of sneaky, subtle credibility. Uh, first, he says, that's enough going off to Jerusalem. New king, new place to worship. But he doesn't, he doesn't just pick any old place. He picks Bethel. Bethel means house of God. Don't go to the temple as the house of God. Go to Bethel, which is the house of God. And Bethel was a place with deep roots in Israelite history, deep worship roots in Israelite history. Just travel back to Genesis for a couple of examples. In, in Genesis 12, Abraham is met by God, and he's called by God, and he follows God, and he 
comes to the promised land. And where is the first place Abraham is recorded as having worshipped? But it's in Bethel. This is from verse 8. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent. With Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. If if Bethel, you can hear Jeroboam saying it, if Bethel is good enough for Abraham, why wouldn't it be good enough for us? You can see how that would be convincing. Then move forward to the example of Jacob. Jacob who was renamed Israel by God. Jacob who lends his name to the very nation itself. And it's at Bethel that Jacob has his vision of the stairway going up to heaven and the angels ascending and descending on that stairway. It's at Bethel that God gives His promises to Jacob, promises that he will have a great nation come from him. And in fact, Jacob renames Bethel. It had been called Luz. And Jacob gives it the name House of God, Bethel. And you again can hear Jeroboam saying, if this is a place good enough for Abraham, if this is a place good enough for Jacob, if Jacob says this is God's house, then of course we can worship here. It's a compelling argument, isn't it? Except that it isn't God's argument. Going back just a couple chapters to chapter 9, verse 3, we see that after Solomon has built and dedicated the temple, the Lord says something very simple. I, the Lord, have consecrated this temple which you have built by putting my name there forever. Jerusalem and the temple are not arbitrary places of worship. They're God's chosen places of worship. And even though it seems as though Jeroboam lends an air of credibility to these other locations for worship, the reality that they are not credible, but they are corrupt. Jeroboam also tries to give the appearance of historic roots in this newfound religion, and that he echoes the words of Aaron, the brother of Moses, the first high priest. Remember that while Moses is up on the mountain, Now Mount Sinai, he's receiving the word of God from the Lord himself, and he takes a long time to come down, and the people get restless, and they say to Aaron, you you give us a God, and so Aaron collects all their gold. And then we read this in Exodus 32. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Aaron quotes exactly that. He says, look, this is not something new. We're worshiping in the ancient places. We're going back to having gods like the ancient people did. This is not new. This is deep. In fact, this goes deeper than this new temple that Solomon had built. This is the place where you can worship, and you can worship however you would like. Never mind, of course. God's law forbids in the first and second commandments the making and the worshiping of idols or that God had threatened to destroy all the people and start over with Moses. Of course, Jeroboam doesn't mention that. Only that this is an ancient practice trying to lend credibility to his very politically shrewd idolatry. Of course, it's easy with the benefit of 3,000 years of perspective to see the foolishness in all of this. Put yourself in their shoes. It would have been rather persuasive, especially if you wanted it to be. Just perhaps put it in today's language. 
This worship is more inclusive. You don't have to go all the way to Jerusalem to worship. You can worship closer to home. You can even put a high place just outside your house. You can worship however you would like, whenever you would like, wherever you would like. This is more diverse. It's more inclusive. This is a kinder, gentler religion. Jeroboam is not unique, is he? Very much the same temptation that we come into in our own day. In fact, Jeroboam and his religion are very common and very familiar and to some of the cults of our own day. Think specifically of Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons. Ironically, I received a letter in the mail yesterday from an unsigned letter from a Jehovah's Witness, and the letter was giving me a little bit of grief over what we put on our church sign and telling us that we should put different things on our church sign. I'm not sure what gives the Jehovah's Witness the gall to tell me what we should put on our church sign, but they did. And then with the Mormons, we can think of, of Mormons. Mormons are excellent at perverting the gospel, but making it look very, very attractive. Mormons run advertisements on TV about family time. Fathers, spend time with your children. Who could disagree with that? Mormons are, are good moral people. How could we possibly not want to be with them. I mean, they, they say they believe in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They say they believe in Jesus. They say they believe in heaven. How, how could we possibly not be on board with them? How could we possibly not embrace them? That's rather a simple answer to give. And the answer is that they're not Christians. They reject the basic foundation of Christian belief. And they won't go forward with this. They keep the corruptions. They, they keep the distortions in the background. They front smiling, happy fathers and families, and they keep their false teachings behind. But here are just a few of the false teachings of the Mormon church, which are hidden behind the facade of other good things. They'll teach that, the, that God the Father has a physical body. In fact, that God the Father used to be a man just like us, who lived particularly well and then became a God. They teach that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three entirely independent and distinct identities and three very distinct entities. They teach that Jesus is the result of physical intercourse between God, who is a man, and Mary that people are pre-existent spirits who are simply given a body in birth, and that people are the result of intercourse between heavenly persons simply being placed in a womb at the time of their conception, and they believe that people can become gods themselves. The, the fifth president of the Mormon church said this, and I quote, As man is, God once was. As God is, man may become. And we can go on and on. Mormons reject original sin and hence the whole story of the Bible. Jeroboam is the ancient equivalent of a Mormon. He cloaks his religion in external forms of legitimacy. But the heart of his religion is wretched idolatry. Look at verses 31 to 33 then. Jeroboam built shrines on high places and appointed priests from all sorts of people, even though they were not Levites. 
He instituted a festival on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the festival held in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the altar. This he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves he had made, and at Bethel he also installed priests at the high places he had made. On the 15th day of the 8th month, a month of his own choosing, he offered sacrifices on the altar he had built at Bethel. So he instituted the festival for the Israelites and went up to the altar to make offerings. In the original text, the author makes a, a point seemingly with painful repetition. In our text, we see words like built, appointed, instituted, offered, installed, and made. But in the original text, they all come from the same root, made. And the point is very clear in these last three verses. Jeroboam made up his own religion. This is not true faith. This is not truth at all. This is a, a do-it-yourself religion. He made his own gods. He made his own priests. He made his own temple. He made his own sacrifices. He made his own festivals. He made his own altar. He made his own everything. This is a new religion. This is an original religion. And God does not look favorably upon originality in religion. It's good to be creative. We want to be creative. We want to be creative in the ways that we are able to present and adorn the gospel with those outside the church. We want to be creative in the ways that we serve our community. We want to be creative in the ways that we love and serve each other. We want to be creative even in things that don't seem all that significant like youth group fundraisers. It's, it's good to be creative but we do not want to be creative in theology and worship. We want to be extraordinarily ordinary in theology and worship. We want to worship God not as we wish He was, not in a way that is convenient for us. We want to worship God as He is. And we don't want to do extravagant new things meant to draw people with our, our fanciness. We want to do ordinary things to draw people with the Word and with the Gospel and draw them to Christ. We don't want people to be drawn to us. We want them to be drawn to Christ. We want them to be drawn to God as He is, not as we would present them. And so in our worship, in our faith, we want to read the Bible and sing the Bible and pray the Bible and preach the Bible that those around us will see God in the Bible. Jeroboam gets too fancy for his own good. He leaves behind the original God-given true faith and conjures up his own. And that wasn't going to work out so well for Jeroboam. Because of Solomon's sin, now there are two kingdoms, and two kings, and two capitals, and two governments. That was God's doing. But now because of Jeroboam's sin, there are two religions. And that sin is one that Jeroboam and his nation would never recover from. It would not go well for Jeroboam. So how will it go for you? Is God enough for you? 
Is God's Word strong enough for you? Is God's Word secure enough for you? Are you content with God just as He is, not as you would like Him to be? And are you satisfied with the Christ who is, not the Christ you wish there was? Is God enough for you? And will He be enough for you no matter what the cost is, and no matter what He calls you to, no matter how convenient or expedient it may seem to be to change who God is? Is God enough for you? He is enough for us, isn't he? His word is strong enough. His word is secure enough. God is good just the way he is. And we are satisfied in Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we pray. We pray for many things, but perhaps... Above all, we pray that we would never desert you. Never fall into the sin of Jeroboam. Never leave you. Never fall away on account of hardship or harshness. But we pray that you would keep us. Even that you would discipline us. That you would cause us to walk in paths of righteousness, keep us on the narrow road that leads to life, usher us through the narrow gate that leads to life. God, keep us from the sin of Jeroboam. Cause us to have wisdom that comes from heaven, to love Christ, to worship you as you are, not as we wish you were. Because we have faith that when we come to the end of our lives or Christ comes and we enter into your presence, we will recognize that there is no other God. And that it is not possible for you to be any better than you are. Help us, Father, in our time of struggle. Keep us free from temptations. Deliver us from the evil one. We pray that you would indeed preserve us as we seek not to be the rocky soil or the weedy soil, but as we seek to be the good soil that bears fruit 30, 60, 100 fold. We are entirely dependent upon you for that. And so we commit ourselves to you, the perfect and perfectly sufficient God. We pray in the name of your perfect and perfectly satisfying Son. Amen.